Father, we have just sung truths that are so helpful for our souls. For we look about us and we see nations raging and kingdoms rising and falling. And our hearts are tempted to despair. And then we remember that there is one king reigning over all. He is a king who is worthy. He is a king who is beautiful. He is a king who is reigning in splendor and majesty over every tribe and tongue. And His kingdom is unlike any other kingdom on this earth. His kingdom is forever and comes with wisdom and power and blessing. And we adore Him. And we long for Him. And we long for His splendor. And we long for this world and those whom we love in this world who have been deluded by the evil one to be aware of His majesty and power and His goodness and His grace and that they they might submit to Him in repentance and faith. Oh, Father, this morning as we come to such a well-known story and a well-known man of faith, would you strengthen our faith and embolden us and give us courage and hope for these difficult, tempestuous, turbulent days. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen do not have to tell you that we live in a perverse world. When you open up your news browser or your favorite news app on a daily basis, you're assaulted by the reality of the perversity of this world. Just this last week, the latest Supreme Court nominee refused to provide a definition for the word woman, saying she couldn't explain what a woman was, what she couldn't explain what a woman was, because she's not a biologist. Which don't get on Facebook, but it's led to a whole host of funny posts. (laughs) This week, a biological transgender male won quote-unquote, the women's NCAA swimming title for the women's 500-meter freestyle. Disney is releasing a movie soon, a new cartoon movie for children. I saw the information about that this week, featuring a homosexual kiss. They put it in, they took it out, and now it's back in again to stay. And a Christian news agency self-reported about sexual harassment from two of its former leaders, including its president, over a period of about a decade. Worst of all, they acknowledged that the harassment that had had encompassed about a dozen different women over the course of that decade had been reported to the Human Resources Department and had been ignored and mocked. It's cliched to say it. But the world just seems to be getting going from bad to worse, doesn't it? And sometimes you just wonder, how bad will it get? I sat in a seminary classroom years ago. 
over three decades ago. And I promise you, the things that we are dealing with in this world never came up in the classroom. You, 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 just, couldn't, you just couldn't have a perverse enough imagination to, to conjure up that idea. I don't know how much, how much good news this is, but I do have some moderate good news for you this morning, and that is it has been much worse in previous generations. Much worse. In fact, there was a time when the world was in such bad shape that there was only one righteous man in the world, him and his family. One. And God decided to judge the whole world apart from that family and start over with humanity from that one man's line. I'm speaking, of course, about Noah. I've read it already, but did you catch what Moses said about it? Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You just can't get much more inclusive language than that, can you? Only, every, only. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. I don't think we can picture just how awful the world was in that day, even though we are in really wicked times, seemingly. Yet I do want to give you some good news that's a little bit more good news, and that is in the midst of such pervasive depravity, Noah thrived spiritually. Along with Enoch, Noah is the only man in all of Scripture of whom it is said he walked with God. And he did it in those days. He had an intimate relationship of fellowship and trust in God while surrounded by astounding rebelliousness. So brothers and sisters, the story of Noah is an encouragement for every believer who lives in a dark and perverse world. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews would have us to know. He's writing to a church, to a people who are scattered or thinking about being scattered and thinking about leaving Jesus Christ and thinking about giving up on Him because of all the suffering they're enduring and thing, things must be wrong if the suffering is so great and let's just, let's just give up Jesus and go back under the law and then we won't have to suffer anymore and isn't that a good solution to our problems? And in story after story in Hebrews chapter 11, the author is pointing to people who persevered amidst much difficulty. And this morning he points to Noah as an example of living by faith And what we will find from the story of Noah in this chapter and in Genesis 6 is simply this. Living by faith means obeying God by faith. We obey in the present, anticipating something that's coming in the future. We believe that the the future is better than today and I can persist in obeying God today because I know what's coming in the future through Jesus Christ. In the opening verses of this chapter, we've seen that Abel worshipped by faith and Enoch walked by faith. And today we will see that Noah worked by faith. 
His belief in God's word was so profound that it shaped what he did when no one else was obeying God. He obeyed. In these verses, the writer will demonstrate three aspects of Noah's obedient faith. Three aspects of Noah's obedient faith. I want you to notice from verse 7, first of all, the contexts of Noah's faith. And verse 7 begins, by faith, Noah. This is now the fourth time that he's used that phrase, by faith. It's becoming a clear pattern for this chapter already. We've seen it in verses 3 and 4 and 5. We've also seen what a life without faith looks like from verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You cannot please God if you do not have faith in Him, if you do not trust Him, not only for your salvation, but for all of life. You have to trust Him. This is what life is like. This is what faithful living for Jesus Christ looks like. But but already in this chapter, we're starting to see nuances of what this faith looks like. So Abel, we saw he worshipped. And Enoch, we saw he walked. And now we see Noah works. Noah's obedience. And there's two contexts in which we're going to see Noah's obedience. The first one is explicitly stated. And the second one is implied. The first context is this. By faith, Noah being warned by God. The context in which Noah obeyed was underneath the warning of God. Noah obeyed when he was warned. This warning that comes from God is a divine message. It's a divine injunction. Noah was not operating on a hunch. But he operated because of a divine special revelation about what would happen in the future. God revealed, God spoke, God declared, and he declared something pretty astounding. Something that had never happened in the history of the world at that point. Nothing for which Noah would have ever had any kind of category. And it is in that context of being warned by God that he responds. Says one writer, it was the voice of God that carried conviction to him. God spoke and he unhesitatingly acted. He acted because God spoke. When God speaks, he always speaks with authority. You know, we talk about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments identified Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And um, I think a number of years ago, Ted Turner came up with something to contrast the Ten Commandments. He came up with the Ten Voluntary Initiatives. There's nothing compelling about voluntary initiatives. These are commands by God. They come with the authority of God, with the decree of God, with the imperative of God, with accountability to God. And he, Noah, acted. This is the way, this is the way God's people always respond to him when he speaks. That's what Paul commended the Thessalonians for in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, for this reason, we constantly thank God. That when you received the word from which you, word of God from which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You accepted it, you responded to it, you submitted yourselves to it, you followed it, you obeyed it. And this is what the Thessalonians did, this is what Noah did. He received the word of God for what it was. The warning is given for us. So Noah, excuse me, the writer of the Hebrews simply says Noah was warned. The warning is given in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 13. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me because the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So everything on the earth, the earth and the people will all be condemned. And then he explains how Noah is to build the ark. Verse 17, I am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now notice the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 7, He is warned by God about things not yet seen. In that warning, there were at least two things that Noah had never seen. One thing that he had not seen is that he had not he, sir, he, he had not heard or seen that kind of judgment. Now, he had seen judgment. He'd heard of judgment. I mean, he knew the story about Adam, right? So he knew that Adam had been sent out of the Garden of Eden in judgment. He knew about the curse that came on Adam because of Adam's sin. He understood how it has flowed, flowed to all of mankind. He knows of other kinds of curses as well. He knows of the curse of Cain. And that God had judged him in a particular way for his murder of Abel. But he had never seen the kind of immediate wrath and judgment that came from God like this. God said, all people will perish immediately. He'd never seen that. The second thing he hadn't seen was, whereas there were seas on the earth, Noah had apparently not seen rain. We get that from Genesis chapter 2. Verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So back in the old days and the first days, there was no rain. Water came up, not down. And God says, I'm going to flood the whole earth. He'd never seen anything like that. And he acted in faith. And this is a good reminder that we don't act by faith in what we know. We act by faith in God who is. Isn't this verse 6? We believe that He is. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in verse 7 says, He is warned by God about things not yet seen. That is the essence of what it means to live by faith. He says that in verse 1 of chapter 11, right? So when he characterizes what faith looks like, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. I believe that it exists, though I have not seen it. And Noah responds, and he hears the warning of God and says, I don't have a category for this. I don't understand it, but I believe it because God has said it. And he acts on it. Just because we haven't seen something about God doesn't mean it isn't a reality. There are realities about God that are yet to be revealed and seen for us also. And we can respond and live by faith. Isn't it true that we also, like Noah, have been warned about a coming judgment of God? We see that in chapter 2 of this book. We see it in chapter 3. The whole book of Revelation is about it. We've seen it in multiple other places. We've seen it in Romans as well as we just finished that recently. We see the coming judgment of God. We haven't seen it, but we believe that God will punish all sin, all sinners in hell for all of eternity. He will be unrelenting in His wrath. And He will restore all righteousness. It has been noted that Noah is the first of the attested witnesses whose faith meant taking God at his word. So as you think about those who have been identified here so far, Abel and Enoch, now Noah is the first one that has, has been challenged to believe something that seems incomprehensible to him. 
And he responds in faith. A faith, says this writer, that is clearly forward-looking. He's anticipating God's action in the future. Though he has never seen God act in that way. He doesn't have to see God operate that way in the past to believe him for the future. Nor do we. God has revealed how he will act and we can trust him. We can trust him. And so Noah acts because he's been warned by God about a judgment that is coming. And he must act to prepare himself for his family. Was it as striking to you as it was to me as I read this chapter earlier this week? Verse 22, chapter 6. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. He didn't argue. He didn't say, wait a minute, I've never seen anything about this flood. What are you talking about a flood? What are you talking about all people? Can't I intercede for some of the people? No, he just, he just did. He just obeyed. He just acted. He took God at his word. You believe God. There's also an implied context in which Noah acted. The writer expects us to know a lot of these stories in this chapter. And certainly Noah's story would have been familiar to his readers, even as it is familiar to us. They knew and we know that Noah was not only faithful in the context of coming judgment, but he was faithful in the midst of pervasive perversity and relentless rebellion. The implied context is he obeyed when no one else did. Now, now, now the writer of the Hebrews is not explicit about this, but we know this. In this story, right? Moses explains the perversity of Noah's generation. We, we saw that in, in verse 5 and verse 6 of Genesis chapter 6. We see it again in verse 10. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13, the end of all flesh has come. The earth is filled with violence because of them. Violence, violence, perversity. And God's grieved. How horrific must that sin have been? For God to say, I'm grieved and I regret that I made mankind. How hostile to God must mankind have been for God to say, I created man for his glory, for my glory. And they're so perverse, I'm going to destroy it and start over. I'm grateful that Moses didn't tell us what was going on in Genesis 6. I don't think our hearts could take it if we would know in specifics. But it also speaks to this. How hard must it have been for Noah to walk with God when every other relationship he had apart from his wife and kids, was in rebellion against God. Every relationship. Some of you have been alone, and you've walked 
dark days. You've walked difficult days. Some of you have suffered, even been persecuted, and suffered harshly for the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the other hardship. How hard must it have been for Noah to do that for 120 years? You've got to read it carefully. But verse 3 of Genesis 6 says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. I'm not going to keep man alive forever. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Nevertheless, I'm going to give him 120 years to repent. And for 120 years, Noah was surrounded by this pervasive perversity and walked alone. Our world may not be as perverse as Noah's, but it follows the very same pattern as Noah's world. Since Genesis chapter 3, God's people, including his son, have always been opposed by the world and lived in the context of evil. And we need faith to believe that the world really does not satisfy and the world really does have a horrific end. And not be drawn in and sucked in and compromised and say, well, maybe it's not quite so bad. I mean, everybody else. We need faith to believe that Christ plus suffering is better than the world and no suffering. That's what Noah believed. And God blessed him. We need to believe in the reality of God's coming judgment against sin and sinners. G.K. Chesterton said this, not speaking about this passage, but the truth relates. He said, a man was meant to, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself and undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, he wrote a hundred years ago, nowadays, the part of a man that does assert is exactly the part he ought to doubt himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, divine God. And that is true in our day as well. And while we hate the evil and we hate the brokenness that results from evil, don't you love the power of the gospel that shines as a diamond against the blackness of sin? You're familiar with the passage. You know the passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the spirit of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And isn't that a miserable place to be? But God, being rich, in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, saved us. You only see the beauty of the grace of God against the darkness and the blackness of sin. And it takes sin to reveal the magnificence of grace. And that is what Noah saw in his day. And that is what we have an opportunity to see in our day. We can reiterate again exactly what we said last Sunday, brothers and sisters. We do not need to have a sanctified world to live in a sanctified life. 
It is always possible to live in a corrupt world and be pleasing to the Lord. And, and frankly, that is a theme of this chapter. We're going to see it again repeatedly. We see it here. We'll see it in verse 13. These died without having received the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We'll see it in verse 25 with Moses choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. We'll see it in verse 32 and verse 33. Men who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut mouths of lions, escaped the edge of the sword, became mighty in war, put armies to flight because of faith. They were mocked, verse 36, scourged, in chains, stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death. In verse 39, they gained approval. It is always possible to live a sanctified life in an unsanctified world. No, excuse me, Noah is the shining example of that. So remember the context of Noah's faith. Remember as well, notice as well, the work of Noah's faith, the work of Noah's faith. The writer points to one attitude and one action that Noah demonstrated in his faith and what he did was done with an attitude of reverence he was motivated by reverence Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence in in the heart attitude of reverence he worked so the the work was the overflow of the heart of reverence and worship the word reverence means to act circumspectly or warily or carefully respectfully and so he's respectfully following the command of God, dutifully doing everything that God demanded and everything that God implied. And the implication is that there is joy and delight and satisfaction in doing what he did. That word reverence does contain the idea of fear, but this isn't a cowering fear. This is not a fear that runs away from God who has warned. This is a, this is a running to the God who has warned. And says the God who is going to pour out judgment on the unrighteous is the only safe place for me to be and I will go to him. It is in that kind of reverence and that kind of fear and in that kind of trust that he acts. And the action that demonstrated his faith is that he prepared an ark. The text says in reverence he prepared an ark. He acted with diligent faithfulness. Over the years, I've made no secret about my impatience. You, you, you know or you should know that I'm not particularly patient. I, I thought I was revealing something to my wife on one occasion. We were in the backyard. It was a Saturday afternoon and she was in the middle of a project and I was thinking about dinner and she was saying, I need to finish this and this and this and then we can get some dinner. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm not very patient. I thought I was revealing something to her that she didn't know. And she just kept on doing what she was doing and nodded her head and said, yeah, I know. It's like, what? What, is it really that obvious? Yeah, it's that obvious. I'm not very patient. I don't wait well, especially in traffic. On 377, at 4.30 in the afternoon, trying to get across the bridge. You can pray for me. <laughs> and you're not patient either. I know that. You know, we hold up Job as an object of patience, don't we? I think we need to hold up Noah 
as an object of patience. The text, the Bible is often so horribly, and I don't mean that in a bad sense, so terrifically understated. And he prepared an ark. Like, okay, God said build an ark, I'm going to go build an ark. And like tomorrow it's done. Except it wasn't tomorrow. It was a hundred and twenty years. He built a boat. Pretty remarkably sized boat. We read it Genesis 6.15, right? It's um, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits tall. That's roughly, a cubit is roughly 18 inches. So 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. No extension ladders. No chainsaws. No table saws. No squares to make sure that all of his cuts are straight. And when you're building a boat, you want straight cuts when joints are meeting. No crew to finish out the boat when he's done. Because God said, there are going to be rooms in it. you got to build it out. And just how big is this thing? Oh, it's about 101,000 square feet on the three decks. If you want it in cubic feet, that's about four and a half million cubic feet of space. One guy and his three sons. And there's no Home Depot and no Lowe's to say, hey, I need some more nails. I doubt that there were nails, actually. Uh, I need another load of pitch. Go make it. 120 years. And then he had to load all of the animals from the cockroaches. I've always wondered why God had to put them on there, but he did. From the cockroaches to the elephants. He's putting them in place, gathering the food, putting it in. 120 years. We know from Second Peter chapter 2 that while he was doing this, he was also preaching. And we know... That at best, at best, they ignored Noah. We get that from Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says in verse 37, Jerusalem, uh, helps to get the right chapter. Chapter 24, verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. So Noah's out there. He's building an ark, building an ark. Day after day, week after week, month after month, decade after decade, century after. And he's preaching and saying, repent. God's coming with judgment. Repent. Yeah, yeah, Noah, yeah. And they just kept on doing business as they typically did it, day after day, with no thought about the future. They didn't care. There's no passage that tells us, but I don't think you can read this story and say that there's no, that there's any context in which they would not have mocked him, ridiculed him, persecuted him, ridiculed him. (laughs) Right, Noah. Rain. What's rain? Why are you building your boat so far away from water? How are you going to get that thing to the water? 
What's judgment? Is God really alive? Does God really care? How long have you been doing this now? 60 years? Oh no, it's 65. Why are you building your ark? Noah, you're a fool. And that would be the kind thing that they probably heard from them. The writer uses the life of Noah to remind us that a life of faith is a life of obedience. We don't wait for the acceptance of the world to obey. When God commands, we follow. We believe that it is always wise and it is always rewarding to obey what God commands, no matter the cost. Let me just ask a question. Do you have your Bibles? Most of us have more than one copy of a Bible. We're exposed to the Scriptures in multiple ways. Many of you listen to podcasts, listen to sermons during the week. You read the Bible during the week. Let me just ask a question. Is there something that God has revealed about your life that you know needs to change and you've been hesitant to obey because the cost is big? Can I just encourage you? If God has spoken it, it's time to obey. It's time to take seriously what God has revealed in His Word. The work of Noah's faith, he was motivated by reverence. He acted with diligent faithfulness. And he did so with a desire for salvation. The reason that he built the boat, notice this, for, it was for the salvation of his household. Why did he build the ark? Why did he prepare the ark? It was for the salvation of his household. When we, when we speak about salvation, there are two senses that the word salvation is used in Scripture. It can mean physical salvation, and that's certainly in view here, right? You get in the boat to be saved from the flood that's coming. The ark kept them alive, kept them from dying physically. But the salvation is also a spiritual salvation. Notice the context. While he is doing all this, he's condemning the world. There's judgment coming. And getting in the boat meant trusting God to preserve them. So it's not just physical salvation. It's an act of faith to get in that boat that trusts God. It also says in this verse, the end of the verse, that he became, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He, he received the righteousness of God that was imputed to him. So it's not just physical salvation that he's pursuing, it is spiritual salvation that he's pursuing. Another passage in the scriptures tell us about the Bible's estimation about Noah and his faith. Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel 14, verse 14 and following. It says this, Son of man, starting in verse 13, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it and cut off from cut it off from both man and beast. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves. So if you get three of the greatest men of Israel's history, and I'm about to pass judgment, Noah, Daniel, Job, their salvation is only good for themselves. And the rest of the chapter keeps playing that out. 
I think four different times, 14, 16, 18, and 20. It says the same thing. They could only say themselves. What's notable in that is that Noah is seen as one who is remarkable in his faith towards God. What's also notable is that Noah's faith is effective only for him. Every single man is accountable to God for his sin and where he will spend eternity. Noah's righteousness was righteous, but it was Noah's righteousness, not yours, not mine. And this is a reminder this morning that if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, perhaps you're not overly concerned about what the world thinks. Perhaps you are overly concerned about what the world thinks about you and you're not overly concerned about what God thinks about you. And you're more fearful about the mocking and ridicule and hostility that comes from the world. But like Noah, we need to fear more and reverence more the authority of God and respond to Him in faith and be cognizant of what He thinks of us. Brothers, sisters, friends, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you, I compel you, on the authority of the Scriptures, I command you to repent and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You are a sinner, and like those who are alive in Noah's days, God will not let the guilty go unpunished. There is an accountability day coming, but there is a way out. Not through any man except the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Through Him, by believing in Him, you can have faith. This is how the writer of the Hebrews will say it in chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It says, It was fitting for Him for whom are all things and from whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which, he is not, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If you want to come to faith, if you want to be God's son, you need to come through his other son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. You've got to trust him. I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I trust only you and what Jesus accomplished on the cross to save me from eternity in hell. Would you save me? That's what Noah did, motivated by reverence, worked with diligent faithfulness out of a desire for salvation. And what was the result? Was everything that Noah did worthwhile? And Hebrews notes two results from Noah's faith. As the writer sums it up, sums up his life in that one verse, he says the first result is that he condemned the world. The word condemnation, as it's used in the New Testament, this particular word is often used of one person condemning another. So it's possible that the writer of Hebrews is thinking about Noah's preaching ministries from Second Peter chapter 2 and thinking about how when he preached, he condemned sinners. And that is certainly possible. But I think grammatically what's going on, he says... Um, In reverence, he built an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. It was his act of faith in building the ark by which he condemned the world. His faith towards God was condemning to the world. The fact that he lived faithfully to God in the midst of such perversity just heaped more condemnation and culpability on the rest of the world that had rejected God. Note that while he is condemning the world 
And while he is being evidenced to be righteous, his condemnation did not make his life easier. If, frankly, it probably made his life harder. But his act of faith allowed him to have a clear conscience about what he had done. Brothers and sisters, when the world rejects our preaching and our lives, we don't need to despair. Grief and sorrow may be appropriate, but not hopelessness. Not despair. If we have been faithful to obey and speak, then we have done our job. And we can lay our our head on our pillow at night and rest well, even when the world has rejected us. Noah's life is a reminder to keep going to the end. Second result is that he became an heir of righteousness. Notice that the writer says at the end of verse 7, he became an heir of righteousness. It reminds us that Noah was not inherently righteous. He also was born under the original sin of Adam. He also was born as a sinner under condemnation. He was born as a sinner deserving of hell. He was not inherently righteous. He became righteous. He was declared righteous by God. In fact, notice this. Genesis 6, 9 points out the reality of Noah's faith, right? These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. Noah walked with God. Three different phrases it used to denote his righteousness. But the previous verse tells us how that came to be. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is actually the word grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How was Noah saved? He was saved by grace. And in fact, the writer of the Hebrews draws attention to that, right? He became an heir. He was made righteous, declared righteous rather, an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He came to it by grace through faith. Salvation's always been the same. From Old Testament to New, Noah to us. Salvation is by grace through faith. Noah was not righteous because of his obedience. He was faithful to obey because he had been declared righteous by God and enabled by God to persist in walking with him. There's Noah in a world not unlike ours, living faithfully. We often talk about counting the cost of discipleship. Was following after God worth the cost to Noah? What was the cost? 120 years of hard labor and rejection and mocking. Had to be some questions along the way, you would think. That's the cost. What's the benefit? A right standing before God and all of God's blessings. Living by faith in the present for Noah, anticipating the promises of God in the future, was well worth it. And it will be for us as well. One writer says this, Noah's faith led to amazing acts of obedience. And seeing such obedience should be an encouragement to us. At our core, core, we all tend to be skeptics when it comes to radical obedience. We tend to think that nobody really does obey God that way. It's not possible. But Hebrews 11 shows us that our skepticism is unwarranted. Hebrews 11 is a long list of people who radically obeyed God when doing so made no earthly sense. Obedience is possible. 
but only by faith. Father, thank you for the reminder of Noah's life. Thank you that here was a man who walked faithfully with you. A remarkable faith, an uncommon faith, a unique kind of faith, seldom seen among your followers. And he did so in the most wicked of days this world has ever seen. And might that be an encouragement to us? For we too live surrounded by wickedness, though not as great in that day. And we too have a salvation that has come to us by grace through faith. And as New Testament believers, we have the added privilege and blessing of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, leading and guiding us through His Word. And so, Father, would you make us bold, unafraid, uncompromising, faithful to you, to walk with you all of our days in this perverse world. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.